Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. Hello, church. What a brutal passage, especially after we've had kind and happy people up here. Um, I know when I go around visiting house churches, every so often, like you, Kirksville, Missouri, you say, we love it when Al May gets up because we never know what's going to happen. Neither do we, frankly. But uh, that's one of the reasons we love him. He's, he's one of us. He's one of us and one of you. So that it's brilliant. And Caleb, it's so good to see you here. Um, please look up Flint Global and make sure that you, um, you know, that, that was a, a fail on our part. We should have had that link in the newsletter. We'll put the link in the newsletter this next week um, and make sure that people can find you, find what you do. This is, his work is one of the works that you are supporting when you send your money here because we don't have a whole lot of things to grab it as it passes by. You know, we are, we're not storing it up for ourselves, and therefore we're able to give. Uh, we don't have to maintain a multi-million dollar building uh, or a multi-million dollar minister. So if I don't look good, that's your problem, right? You're saving money. Have you, have you ever been in a very tense situation? Suddenly it just arose, and you know it is very dangerous when you hear the phrase, you want to take this outside, Jesus, our king, arrived on earth, and he's now sat on this hill, uh, a mountain to them, and he's already said some very startling things, and what you need to remember about this, we brought this up before, we tend to think that Jesus sat, said these things, and then walked away. That is not the way Jewish people at that time, or even today in most places, are going to learn. It's a give and take. There are discussions going on. You might be wondering, well, then why don't we have those written down? Well, that's because Matthew and Luke weren't really interested in what other people had to say. They were interested in recording what Jesus said. And, and you find out if you compare Matthew to Luke that when Jesus spoke, there were different things said. Therefore, the, the sermon on the mount or the sermon on the flat place in Luke differed because the crowd did. Jesus has said some very harsh things, some unsettling things as he announces the new rules for the kingdom. To have a kingdom, remember, you've got to have a king, you've got to have people, you've got to have a territory, and you have to have a law. This is his law. This Sermon on the Mount is his law. And last week, we looked very briefly at uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21-22, when it talks about, you, you, you've heard it said, you shall not murder I tell you that if you hate your brother, you've already murdered in the heart. What did he do? He took the law about murder and he moved it inside. Today, we're going to take a look at other passages where Jesus says, you want to take this inside? Because it has to go inside before it goes outside. And the fact is, it has to go inside a lot and outside and inside and outside. Cleansing is not a one and done thing. 
characterological transformation is not a one-and-done thing. You can't say, right, well, I've struggled, for example, with depression all my life, but then I read this article online, and I'm fine now. It's not the way this works. You're probably going to continue to struggle, so you just need to learn how we struggle with depression. By the way, some of God's favorite people were depressed. It's not a sin to be depressed. Sometimes it's just a sign you're paying attention. And therefore, how do we cope? We move things inside, and that helps us behave in a certain way outside, and that cycle continues. By the way, it's far easier to obey outside than inside. Everybody where I live now in Middle Tennessee knows this, although they may not admit it. Many of you are overseas, many of you are in other cultures, so let me just explain. If you come to Middle Tennessee, or I am told, much of the South, and somebody says, bless your heart, the outside seems to be very kind. It is not. Bless your heart is a Southern way of saying, you, you idiot. And now that I've told you this, many of you are, are aghast, and you're going to come back down and find people and correct them, but... It's easier to be a Christian outside than it is inside. Jesus is looking for inner transformation, which will result in a transformed life, a transformed culture, a transformed community. And for that to happen, we have to hold our insides as accountable as our outsides. And sadly, most of us were raised in churches where the outside was the only thing graded. You had to do the outside certain ways. And the outside had to be done reading the right version of the Bible, and you had to agree to these sets of things that were outside. Now, sometimes they would make you sign something that said, but inside you believe these. But we all know that most of the, what are church fights about? The outside, worship, music, who the minister is, how you're organized. Why are there denominations? Once again, outside stuff. We think God wants this, you think God wants that. I remember coming to America um, and being around people that came to us and said, well, you guys are restoring the New Testament church. Do you guys do foot washing? And my, my dad said no, which relieved me no end. I was just thinking, oh, no, I don't think I want to be involved in this a bit. But why not? Well, because people, they collect what they want to be outside and call that Christianity. Jesus says no, no. There are rules about how we think about other people. In Matthew 5, 23 through 26, we mentioned it briefly last week. And in Jesus' kingdom, it's always your turn. It's always your move. If somebody has offended you, it is your move to go to them. If you have offended somebody, it is your move to go to them. There's never a time of, well, I did my bet. Now, you can try, and after a while, when you find that perhaps a certain person will not let things go, will not allow you to be reconciled, fair enough. That happened to Jesus. They killed him. It's in the book. You probably read the story. But he did everything he could to heal the relationship, even forgiving them as he was killed by them. You see, reconciliation is what we do. Healing is what we do. This kingdom is not about bombs and wars. It's about behavior. In fact, Matthew chapter, um, chapter 5, verses 25 and 26 warns you. Jesus says, you better agree or they're going to take you to court. You know, there are consequences to living 
a non-reconciled life. But far too many of us are too proud or too absolutely certain of our rightness to compromise. And in fact, in religion, I'd always been taught the compromise was a bad word. And then I read scripture where Jesus tells a parable about a steward that wasn't doing his job well. And the, the guy says, listen, I'm going to, I've seen the books, you're in trouble. Steward goes out and starts negotiating and compromising all over. And what does the, the master say? He said, smart, good idea. Well, well done. Compromise was actually pushed. I mean, this is why God says, come, let us reason together instead of shut up and do what I told you. He works with us. This is why he told Moses when the people were in rebellion, we're going to try this, and if that doesn't work, we're going to try this, and if that doesn't work, we're going to try that. It's amazing how many people have never picked that up in, in Scripture, that he didn't come thundering in and said, my way are done. Instead, he goes, I'll work with you. Like with Abraham over uh, the, the cities on the plains. He, he, Abraham said, that you, you want to destroy them all, but what if we found this number? And Abraham negotiates with God, and God negotiates back. But too many of us think compromise is wrong, so we draw our lines and we yell at people. We yell at employees. We yell at our neighbors. We insist it's our way or there is no other way. This week, I was in a grocery store uh, and um, supermercado, you know, a, a supermarché. Uh, I was in a, a, a big one here in, in our area. And as in most now in America, you not only shop there, you work there. Because you have to check yourself out. And you have to bag your own things. Now, this is not uh, new to our friends in Europe and other places that have to take their own bags to the market all the time. But this is new for us. And I had some things that were a little heavy to lift out the cart, but I was game to try it. And there's a lady there who's about my age, and we visit. Uh, I won't say her name because I didn't ask permission. But she's super friendly, and I always check on how she's doing and she goes, you don't have to lift that. You can use the gun to shoot it, which I don't know why she would say that in America, but there's, there's this thing. It's a light thing that, that reflects off a coat. And so she grabbed it, and it didn't work. It did an error. So she, she kept trying, and she was getting a bit nervous. And I looked at her, and I said, you didn't design the equipment. You didn't set up the rules. It's okay. And, and it's amazing the responses you get. You think, well, you, you, she said, you'd be surprised how many people yell at us. I said, no, I wouldn't be. I've, I've gone to airports where people abuse the person behind the desk when they didn't cause the weather. <laughs> they didn't ask the pilot not to show up. You know, they didn't break the plane. But they are the one getting the people. Jesus says, move inside, work on yourself. Come out ready to compromise. Come out ready to work with them. He warns there are consequences if you don't do this. And it's not just about you and going to court. It's about giving Christians and the church a bad reputation. We don't want to do that. You cannot transform your community if you are not transformed. And if you do not behave in a transformed manner. By the way... He's reminding us here that even though we're in his kingdom, we are not yet in heaven. We are in some senses, Hebrews 12 cents, but our bodily is not there. And therefore, we're, we're going to deal with injustice. When that happens, we should do everything we can to bring justice. 
But when we can't, we should not be surprised when we are treated unjustly by this world. We know that God will treat us with mercy, justice, but tempered greatly by mercy. By the way, that's one of the reasons our, our whole system in America is based on compromise when it comes to crime. Well over 90% of all crimes are pled down. That means away from the original charge, way down. Why? Because if you don't, you, there's no time to get it through the courts. It would snarl a whole system. There's a constitution in America that guarantees a speeding trial. And what that means is absolutely nothing. So um, and, instead of sitting in a prison for four or five years, literally waiting for the first hearing to see whether you should stay there, they plead down. Or they plead out, it's called. But we need to move inside again and talk about some pretty gross stuff. But we're not going to talk about it in a gross way. So you don't have to you know, run the kids out the room. I'm just going to refer to verses 27 through 30, which were read before I got up here. It sounds incredibly strict and incredibly gross. And as a boy, I heard a couple of sermons where they went through the whole mechanics of how one might do this. And that was completely unnecessary. There's no reason to terrify people. That's not what Jesus was trying to do. He was speaking in hyperbole. That's an intentional overstatement to make a point. We speak in hyperbole all the time. See? That was one. All the time. We don't speak in hyperbole all the time. Sometimes we take breaks to snack. Or to do hobbies. But whenever I say, I'm, I'm, I'm hungry enough to eat a horse... Nobody believes that, but they understand what that means. In France, by the way, they do eat horse meat and snails, both ends of the speed continuum. It's amazing. Anyway, <clears throat> so, or this suitcase weighs a ton. Probably not, but we know what it means. Overstatement serves a purpose. It means we're really hungry, this is really heavy, and Jesus is saying this is really serious. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about our sexual appetites and our sexual drives. They're very strong. They're built into our DNA. There have been very, very, very few people who were completely asexual. You know, I, I think of Lord Mountbatten, which may not mean much to most of you around the world. If you're in British territory, it does. You know, love him or hate him. Most would, would go with hate, but... Um, he was completely not interested. In fact, one woman threatened to write a tell-all book and was trying to blackmail him and claim that they'd had affair after affair. And he said, you know, he actually said words I won't say, but he said publish and best of luck because nobody would believe it. He was cold as he was cold, but most of us aren't that way. And sexual drives start early and they last for most people throughout their life in one way or another. It's a huge part of being human. It was designed by God. I can remember once being at a major university up north when they were, um, they'd asked me to do some classes and then ask if I'd hang about to do a question and answer, which I always do. I love that sort of thing. Because the questions, by the way, are pretty much all the same. And one lady got up and she said, well, Christians are against sex. And I said, no, we're not. And she goes, yes, you are. And I said, no, you're not. This went on for a while because I'm paid by the hour and I have time. <clears throat> after a while she just looked at me and cocked her head a bit and I said I work for the guy that invented it 
And there's a whole book in the Bible about it. Which, by the way, I made more new Bible readers that day than perhaps any other day in my lifetime. You know, uh, and they went to Song of Solomon. And before any of you write in and say, no, the Song of Solomon is an allegory of Christ's love for the church, stop it. Just stop it. It isn't. An allegory, everything allegorized must have a, a, a strict corollary. So when he's drinking out of her belly button, what is that? What? What? Elder selection? What are we talking? It doesn't work. <laughs> so stop it. God made us human. Channeling your sexual appetite is hard. We know that. Channeling any appetite is hard. Uh, I, when we lived in Scotland, one of the, I was a heavier dude there for a long time because Scottish people have bakeries on every corner. I felt it my duty to support all of them equally. It's, it, any appetite is hard to, to channel. Jimmy Carter, a, a former president of the United States, famously said in an interview in Playboy magazine, that he was sure, well, they asked him, have you ever lusted in your heart? And he said he's sure that he had. People went nuts over that. One, that he would give an interview to that magazine, but most of them, oh, you know, how could you, you know, how could you lust in your heart? And the other half of the country thought it was silly to be concerned about that at all. By the way, that argument's still going on. You'll find what they call the Billy Graham rule, which is very, very strict. It's not God's rule. But his rule was to never be alone in a room with a woman without his wife present. In more recent years, people call that the Mike Pence rule because a former vice president took that rule and still lives by that very strictly. It, again, God did not require that at all. And that does, is not a slamming for them. It's not, they're not slamming women. What they're saying is, I'm a man and I cannot control my own thoughts or at least be trusted to. And that's... And again, I understand that. But I think sometimes we get a little bit too... We put too many restrictions on ourselves that Jesus did not. Here's the rule. Here's the fact, rather. Every man lusts in his heart. So, what? In fact, I had, I had once, when I was running a counseling practice, a woman came in and said she was hunting for a way to divorce her husband and figured adultery was the only way she could do it and the guy just refused to have an affair with somebody. So she said, I asked him if he'd ever lusted in his heart. And it, her husband was a minister, so he kind of had to tell the truth. And he said, well, yes. And she goes, aha. And she thought that she came to me to get the imprimatur of, of saying, yes, I can now do it. And I said, no, that's not what Jesus is doing. If you're trying to read this section to make laws about marriage, divorce, and remarriage, you are taking it out of context. And a verse without a context is a pretext. You are blowing this. And you are harming individuals. This is why, by the way, this universality of lust is why Jesus resorts to hyperbole. We need to take control of our inside life when and where we can. When I was a little, I was told of an ancient Chinese proverb that said, you cannot stop birds from flying over your head, but you can stop them from building nests in your hair. Many years later, I would find out the Chinese didn't say that. It was Martin Luther. That's a big miss. That's a big miss, by the way. You have a um, you know, Reformation German saying this. What does it mean? It means thoughts will come to your head. Bidden or unbidden, they will come to your head. But what do you do to What do you do next? What do you do with them? If you take this inside and dwell upon the thought, it's not the flash of feeling that's the sin. It's the stowing away of that feeling and nurturing it, letting it grow 
in your head and your heart. Outside you may look clean, but inside you are growing a very dangerous garden. Have you ever been to a dangerous garden? They do have them. I've seen them in the States. I've seen them in Britain. I would assume they're elsewhere as well. Where you go, everything in there is toxic. And people go there to see this strangeness. They don't go there to eat and have tea or the like. They go there to look at this. There are, um, it's, it's rather like the people that say the cure for cancer could be in the, the rainforest. Absolutely, it could be. Sadly, the rainforest is full of plants and animals and insects that want to kill you. So it's hard to, it's hard just to go get something. What's your garden like inside? Paul put it a different way. He said, you're letting bitterness put down roots and build, then it builds castles, towers. And why is, why is the devil able to build a tower in your head? Because you gave him the real estate. Jesus said, let's take this inside. By the way, some battles will last all your life. I never asked permission from this man before he passed, and so I never use his, his name. But a great leader of the church tribe of which I was a member uh, and grew up in and was thoroughly indoctrinated in was in his 70s when some of the young men around me decided we needed his help and advice. He was a wise man. He was a wise man, good man. So they, they went to him. I just tagged along. And they said, brother, what do you, when does lust stop being a problem? And this 70-something minister thought for a while and looked at him and said, not yet. Now, first of all, our thought was, ooh, but, because all young people do. But I appreciated what he said. Later, I've watched it in nature. Old dogs still want to chase cars. When they're asleep, you can see them doing it. They just don't have the energy. But this leads into our last verse for today, passage, just two verses, 31, 32. The passage that has caused so much pain and hurt. And I'd like to help us return to Jesus' time so we can remove that. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery. So what do we do now? Verse 31, 32. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her the victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. What in the world's going on? There are people that have taken this and used modern English rules and then rules of legalese to make it to where if you're divorced for a reason other than a physical sexual act with somebody else on the part of the other partner, then you are, quote, living in adultery, something which Jesus and the apostles would have looked at each other and go, what is that? Because adultery is an action. It is not a state except, let's talk about this. I heard a lot of horrible ministers in my life. I heard them talk about only the innocent party can remarry. And more than one leaned into the microphone and said, and there are no innocent parties. What cruelty. By the way, it was God that gave Moses the rule that men had to give their wives a certificate of divorce so that the wives could prove they were free to remarry and free to move about without the husband. God's the one that did that. Yes, in Malachi, he talks about, I hate divorce. But there he's talking about, I don't want to divorce Israel. 
He's not talking about your marriage where there might have been domestic violence, neglect, hatred, spite, whatever might have been there. By the way, just to clear this up, we in America and in the Western world use a definition of fornication to mean sex between two people that are not married and adultery to mean sex between two people who are married but not to each other. Those are not the definitions Jesus had. In scripture, adultery is always, when there's a list of sins, is always listed separately from sexual sin. Fornication just means sexual sin. It covers everything. So what is adultery? Adultery means the breaking of a covenant. You made a vow. You broke it. In Jeremiah, God accuses the people of committing adultery with wood and stone. Because they had made idols. And he had said, don't do that. You belong to me. We are, we are in a covenant. But they worship something else. He said, that is adultery. You broke the covenant. When Israel made a treaty with Egypt, he said, you have committed adultery with Egypt. Because God had said, you trust me. You don't trust chariots. You don't make treaties with others. And they did. So what is Jesus saying here? It is so much simpler than we have made it sound. By the way, the NIV here really tries to help explain she is the victim of adultery. But that doesn't really clean this up in our, our language. So let us put it this way. Don't by your selfishness or your decisions make another person suffer. Don't by your selfishness or decisions make another person suffer. If my wife and I decide, or if I decide to divorce her, she's not looking for that. She doesn't want that. I divorce her. What have I done to her? Well, there's a, there's a whole cascade of wrong that it, I've done to her. But one of the things I've done is I have made it impossible for her to keep her covenant to me. And now she's a covenant breaker, but it was not her decision. Some versions will say you've made her an adulteress. The word adulteress does not exist in Greek. It just doesn't. It means that you have made her break her covenant. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians, when he talks, start, you know, read verse, uh, I'm sorry, read chapter 7, go from there. He says that to, to women that if your husband will not live with you because you're a Christian, let him go. You are no longer under bondage. He was saying in the kingdom of Christ, you are not committing adultery. God understands it was not your decision. You've been deserted. You are free now. And by the way, not under bondage was a legal term used to dissolve marriages. He's saying to the Jewish men, treat your wife better. Treat people better. But he's also saying to everybody, Jew, Gentile, whoever's sucked in air, do not by your decisions make others suffer. And that would concern everything inside coming outside, wouldn't it? From the words you use, from what you say on Twitter, what you post on Instagram, how you drive, who you cut in front of, what you say when someone cuts in front of you. All of these things do not make another person suffer because of your selfishness. 
I told people before, to me, the greatest, the greatest um, test of God's command for me to, ex- to prefer others over the, me, to wish good to happen to others before it happens to me, and I'm serious about this. I get tested every single time I land somewhere and go to the luggage area and I realize everything in my heart is screaming out, me first. <laughs> I just, please get my bag off there first. And every time I think, all right, God, thank you for the, um, thank you for the reminder. Later on, sometimes I'll tell him, I'm really, I got the reminder, could I have the bag now? But it shows me I still have a lot of work to do inside. This woman hadn't sinned, but she's hurt, and that's not okay with Jesus. Hurting others is not okay with Jesus. So preachers need to stop it. Christians need to stop it. We will never transform our communities for Christ until our insides and outsides are transformed by Christ. And you, can't tra- you cannot transform the outside if the inside isn't. Because it'll come across as fake. And that's how a lot of Christians come across. I know I've certainly come across that way. You know why? Because some of my life, I have been a fake. Like you. I have to struggle to make sure the garden inside is not toxic. Jesus wants us to clean up. He wants us to be aware of others and the effect our decisions have on them because we are representatives of the kingdom of Christ. Our king our Lord, our Savior, and our God. And it's time that we took that outside and inside and repeat. In this way, Christianity is rather like a shampoo bottle. I've always been fascinated by that when I was a boy and I first read it because back in the day, let let me work with the kids for a minute. Back in the day, kids, there was nothing to read in the bathroom, unless you took out a printed thing. And, well, um, people would read bottles. They would read the back of them. And I don't know why, but that, you know, it, we, we'd, it's kind of like reading a cereal box. We used to do that too. So I picked up a shampoo bottle and it said, lather, rinse, repeat. Well, that, that was a Mobius strip. There, there was no end there. What's, what's the end game? You could say until you ran out, but that doesn't say that. It gives me no leave to ever leave the shower. My, I was not the easiest kid to raise. And the way I put it, uh, I was always scientifically minded, but I was raised in a literalist church, so it's their fault. You know, I, I read it. I'm trying to obey now. But when it comes to Christianity, it really is a rinse and repeat. Check your inside. Check your outside. Repeat. I'm not even going to say repeat is necessary because it's always necessary. That's why I chose this song to come back to. <clears throat> and after a sermon, it's always a real treat to see if I can even do that. Um, this is a song we weren't allowed to sing in my wing of our religious tribe because we would puff up our chest and say, He already is crowned. Yeah, I know. But to crown him king of our lives, that kind of is a daily decision, isn't it? Sometimes a multi-times-a-day decision. 
There, there are times I've looked at God and said, all right, you know, I'm really getting the message now. Could you turn that off a bit? But no, we need to remember to crown him, crown him, crown him. And only by doing that are we really bowing before the right God and swearing allegiance to the right king.